From Relay FM, this is Download Episode 26, recorded Thursday, October 19th, 2017. A miasma of floating pixels. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am Jason Snell, your host, and this week I'm joined by two wonderful guests. Editor of the Windows Super Site, Lisa Schmeiser, is back. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you for having me again. Thank you. There's lots of Microsoft stuff to talk about, so I, I, I thought I would go to, to you so you mm-hmm. could tell me what, uh, what I should know about Microsoft things. All right. There's also uh, some Wi-Fi stuff, and uh, that's one of the many (laughs) areas of expertise of podcaster, writer, Jeopardy champion. And if you don't know him, trust me, he knows your neighbor's mailman. Glenn Fleischman. Hi, Glenn. Hi. Uh, my hair cutter's aunt made work with the guy who made the whips on Indiana Jones. Hi. Glenn, Glenn knows somebody you know. It's 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 mm-hmm. just let's just leave it at that. But it's good to have you both here. Nice to, talk, nice to be here. to talk about this. We're going to talk as we do every week about the most interesting stories of the week, as determined by me and download producer Stephen Hackett, who is uh, he's on assignment today. He is traveling back from Chicago, where I got to see him the last few days. And we did actually talk about download, so we were working. It wasn't just like a party all the time. We, we were doing very <laughs> serious business while eating deep dish pizza. Uh, anyway, here's topic number one. This week, Microsoft released the Fall Creators Update. This is the latest rollout of new features into Windows 10. There's a lot in there. There's more of the, of the the fluent design language. There's some mixed reality stuff that's in there. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. And I wanted to ask Lisa if 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 you're a if you're somebody who uses Windows, um, what are the things that what are the reasons to update? Like, what are the best reasons to go, to get go through the process of updating to the the new Fall Creators update? So, uh, one thing you need to know about Windows 10 to begin with, is the way Microsoft is treating it, it's an operating system as a service, where once you've installed a copy of Windows 10, you have the option to be put on a couple different um, rings for updating. But the idea is that Microsoft pushes out improvements continuously, and then does big feature releases once or twice a year. Right. So, um, Basically, if you're already a Windows 10 user, you're likely looking at, you know, the little blinky updated window saying, hey, do you want to upgrade? There are two really compelling reasons to upgrade, in my opinion. The first is the improved security measures. Microsoft has done a great job in uh, with Windows Defender and with letting people customize both privacy and security at this point. Uh, Microsoft's also added an exploit guard feature for zero-day exploits. And if you are at all concerned about... Um, having your computer hijacked or having your data taken off your computer, you really should be updating to the most recent version of Windows anyway, because most of the exploits and patches tend to be in older operating systems. Uh, so, so security is the first reason I'd update. The second reason I'd, oh, also, also the third thing with security before I get to the second reason, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of numbers here. Um, there's a device guard. So, uh, since most people now have a multi-device computing environment where they're moving between a desktop or a laptop plus a tablet plus a phone, you want to make sure if you are not in a heterogeneous computing environment and you've got, you want to make sure your, your infections don't spread basically. And so Microsoft is building this into their system too, which is great. The second reason to update is they've done a great job of um, encouraging more active integration between iOS and Android and Microsoft Windows, especially with their browser, Microsoft Edge. So they're basically taking a page out of the Apple playbook with Apple Safari because you've got your Safari browser and the bookmarks and history can sync between all of your Apple centric devices. Uh, Microsoft is bringing that with Edge and Edge is a nicely performing browser. It doesn't have a whole lot of battery load, which is great, especially if again, you have a lot of mobile computing in, in your daily workflow. And, um, Although I personally feel like they should have more plugins and more customization for Edge, the fact that Microsoft is is committing to the idea that their users have a mixed a mixed mixed computing environment that's a big step, and um, it's nice that they're making it easier for their system to work with other mobile devices. The third reason I'd upgrade is they've improved their accessibility features, so um, you have more 
you have a higher degree of customization over visual presentation and um, other features that uh, voice activated stuff is getting much better. And they've got improved, um, Im- improved compatibility with devices that let you control your computer by flicking your eyes around. So if you have limited mobility and you rely on um, assistive devices, this operating system has many more features. And Microsoft has been super open about their commitment to making their operating systems accessible to non-neurotypical or, you know, f- or differently abled users. And the fact that they walk the, walk the talk here and are just rolling this out on a regular basis is something I feel like you can take note of. The, it's funny you mentioned security, and this is something that we've, we've noticed in general in the in the computing industry. It sounds like, because I talk to people about this all the time about OS updates, and it doesn't matter what OS it is in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's just the answer is, number one reason to update your operating system on your device is security, because every it's, it's the rare vendor that goes back many versions and does security patches, right? They, do the, they patch the latest version for the most part. Maybe they patch the previous milestone version, but mm-hmm. if you want to be secure and you want to have bugs squashed that would would cause potential you know compromise of your device you've got to update and i think that goes for that you know that's been an issue with android although they've google has tried to build some ways you know to update stuff that isn't quite an os update in order to address some of these issues it's certainly an issue with apple stuff and and with microsoft stuff that you just you kind of want to be on it's tough if there's something you rely on that you're going to have to give up but you know you i've talked to people who feel like they have to choose between security and compatibility but it is security is a you know increasing reason to update. Well, you've just mentioned one of the biggest decisions a lot of people have to make, which is again security and compatibility. Because one of the uh, edit, one of the people I routinely edit for one of the sites I run is you know she writes she writes a patch column, and there's a whole lot where she's like you should patch to update. But if you do, you're going to break this drive, you're going to break this, you're going to break this. And you have people who are like, no, I I really prefer my hardware configuration the way it is, so I'll take my chances. And a corollary to that too is there's a big difference between an end, between a consumer end user who has the option to upgrade or not to upgrade because it's their private system or, um, a business or a public institution or a government institution where their IT budget is often cyclical. Upgrading is something that affects dozens to hundreds to thousands of users, and they can't just stay on top of the latest and greatest, either because there's compatibility issues with industry-specific software, or it costs money that they only get once every two years, or you know any one of a number of other practical reasons where computing is considered to be a fixed cost and not something where there's reactive or responsive spending. Um, I've talked to a lot of IT pros who are tremendously frustrated because like you said, there's not a, there's not as much backward compatibility as there could be. And the assumption that you're going to be upgrading early and often is not one that's sustainable for a lot of people who work with computers on a day-to-day basis. Hey, Glenn, what do you, uh, what, you know, what's your take on the current state of affairs here? Would you advise people, like, I know that Windows is not your specialty, but uh, people on iOS or people on macOS who are thinking about updating and there's a security flaw, but they're worried about their old software going away. I mean, that, that's a tough decision to make. Yeah, I have a lot of different opinions about it because uh, it depends on the severity of the exploit, right? So the thing we'll talk about later is super severe, but sometimes there's something where, uh, you know, an exploit comes out, it's been patched, uh, and, but, you know, you're on an older version. I mean, with, on the Apple side, it's trickier because we, I think it tends to be, it's not a monoculture. It's very different than that, but, um, there tends to be an issue where you don't wind up, uh, you know, breaking all your software because of X. There was a funny situation. This hasn't happened for a while. Is uh, Mac OS High Sierra came out. I installed it on one machine, not the other, to be safe. And all of a sudden, I'm using Adobe InDesign, and the cursor is like some weird, uh, <laughs> like strange, floating, hovering uh, miasma of pixels. And I'm like, well, that's odd. That probably shouldn't happen. And I go and research, and it's like Adobe says, yeah, there's something wrong in High Sierra. They obviously, you know, test their apps and try to get them ready for zero day release right and uh or day and day release and um it actually was something that took some days before a high sierra update came out that one of the items was fixes cursor problem in adobe products you're like real or in indesign you're like that is super weird like what are you guys doing with the cursor that that is an issue uh i don't know um but so that's a great example though is if you were 
It's not even a security thing, but if you're a graphic designer uh, regu- doing production, regularly using it in, in design, and you're, and you're either individual or your company's like, nope, it's cool, we're happy with Apple's process, we've been taste testing the uh, public betas or, or even developer betas over the summer, and our IT organization is going to push out High Sierra, <laughs> then you get into work, you're like, my cursor is a miasma of floating pixels with no point on them. That <laughs> it's is- a cloud! <laughs> <laughs> That's right, the cursor moved to the cloud. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, last year, there was a thing where there were Three simultaneous zero days because of a nation state attack against an activist uh, that were released all at once, right? And those for uh, for iOS, and then a bunch that were related to macOS as well. And those, you know, what do you do? Like the the complexity of them were so hard to execute that you know essentially needed the resources of these outside companies that had developed them and sold them to governments. So you know, are you at risk against those? Well, now that they're announced, maybe more so. So maybe even if you don't want to update, you should. But um, um, so anyway, the whole thing is a little. I think it's a mixed. It's a mixed bag because uh, you don't want to not be able to work. And um, one of the things corporations used to do and still do is they try to control stuff at the edge. Like they're putting the money into their their firewall and advanced intrusion protection systems and so forth. And if they can't push updates inside the network fast enough because of whatever reason, they're at least hoping to control the edge. And that seems to be increasingly a hard strategy to pursue too in any platform. There's currently an ongoing issue with patches for Microsoft Office, where if you install certain patches with a certain operation system configuration, um, your default switches from uh, some Slavic language to English. Which is not a problem if you're an English speaker, but if you're a Slavic language Microsoft user, it's a huge problem. And oh my what, gosh! But what this does is this underscores that one of the fundamental difficulties you have in trying to keep an operating system secure is you can patch an exploit in an operating system, but you literally have no way to test for how it's going to break all of the software that's going to run on top of that operating system. Um, it's it's kind of bananas because at some point you wonder where does the responsibility rest to keep a system functioning smoothly? Should it rest with an operating system? Should there be some sort of testing suite or, or, or standardized way of, of propagating this stuff out so software makers know it? Or does the responsibility rest with software makers who have to stay on top of exploits and then react? Um, you know, I do think it's interesting that with this conversation, we're talking about, oh, how's Microsoft handling patches or, or how is Google handling patches or how's Apple handling patches? But if the software breaks and it's based on the operating system, at what point do you have to expect software makers to be as, as nimble and agile in responding to the ripples with security effects? I'd also point out there's a strategy that's been employed in the past that I've wondered why, especially a company like Microsoft, much less so than Apple, hasn't used more, which is virtual machines or even like sort of micro-virtualization where it's like, all right, I need to move to this new thing for security patch. Why can't I run an earlier release or some kind of micro kernelized environment? I mean, there are these whole micro or micro uh, virtual machines too that are, um, that's been a thing for a few years where they're almost like their own application in an environment as a separate thing that runs. That would allow, especially companies, I mean, individuals were going to be on our own more, but in corporate environments, it would let them run in a, in a sandbox that was more protected or isolated while still having the advantage of the overall security improvements. And I, I don't, I think it's being used a bit. I, I read it here and there, but it doesn't seem to be a broad based strategy. It's not something that Microsoft is pushing as a strategy, as far as I can tell. I think you'd have to figure out how to monetize it, how to sell it as a service, and then you'd have to persuade customers. Um, some of the, one of the interesting things about covering Microsoft right now, and here we're moving from um, Windows 10 to the wither Microsoft conversation as a whole. So Microsoft is actually at a huge business inflection point because it took a look a couple of years ago, it took the right at the writing on the wall and realized that revenue was going to continue to drop in, in hardware. You know, they, they have three basic divisions. They have more personal computing, which has their hardware and has, has operating system sales. And then they have a cloud division. And then they have a division for productivity, which um, covers uh, Office 365 and um, Office support and services there, so on and so forth. And as of right now, the more personal computing division still makes a huge chunk of change. But that huge chunk of change gets slightly less huge every quarter because overall PC sales are plateauing to dropping depending on what time of the year it is. And so Microsoft took a look at this and they were like, you know what, the future is not going to be in hardware sales because the very nature of how we interact with hardware is shifting and changing. 
which we can get to in the surface conversation. <laughs> What's happening where, where the money is, you want to, you always want a steady stream of money. Like the whole goal to having a company is to make sure you have repeat customers who give you money on a regular basis, right? So cloud, because you can sell cloud subscriptions, Office 365, because again, you've locked in people into an ecosystem and they can just renew yearly and all of their stuff is there and inertia keeps them where they are, right? So they're shifting to this, but you have entire IT infrastructures that are built on, on, on a model where it's on-premises hardware, on-premises software, and then a support contract where someone comes in every time you have a problem. And these guys are really not cool with the shift in business strategy. So you have that going on. And then Microsoft recently changed the details on their channel partnership program, um, where it's got more of a, it, it, again, it's more cloud-based and cloud services. And they're really pushing their model of how they think you should work, which companies do. A lot of, a lot of channel partners are really not happy with being told this is how we're working now. So, um, you know, if, if you then have, so, so, you know, Microsoft does these things by fiat every once in a while. Cause they're like, yeah, we've decided the cloud is where we're going. Boom. Here we go. Um, you're going to have people who are unhappy about that. I think if you were to roll out like a virtual machine type thing, like Glenn suggested, at this point, Microsoft would do it as a service and they'd sell it as a subscription service. And they'd have to find a way to make it palatable to longstanding customers who are already like, look, you don't, you are, you are pushing how you do business and your idea of how we do business. But what about how we actually work independent of what's going on up there in Redmond? So, you know, maybe it's something that'll come from customers back to Microsoft and then they'll act like it's their idea. Or, or, or maybe, or maybe they'll be like, oh, revenue stream. I mean, Microsoft you know? redefining its business is a, a huge thing to watch for in the yeah. years ahead because I, I feel like this is actually the friction that's going to happen is going to be similar, probably, to the friction that is currently happening between people who use and rely on the Mac and Apple because Apple Apple's business is changing dramatically. The bulk of Apple's business business is iOS. And there is this question, and Apple insists that they're still committed to the Mac in a way that Microsoft, you know, I, I, there are lots of rumblings out there about how committed Microsoft is ultimately to this concept of, you know, being the steward of Windows and PCs because they're so focused on cloud services. So there will be friction there because they've got a legacy business that is why they are big and throws off a lot of money, but it isn't the future. And that's a, uh, it's, it's how these companies redefine themselves there's a lot there and i think we're going to talk about it a little bit more um because we do i do want to talk about a couple more windows 10 features and also surface but uh before we do that let me take a break and tell you about one of our sponsors this week this episode of download brought to you in part by a new sponsor Bombfell, the online personal styling service dedicated to finding the right clothes for you i know it sounds like an atari 2600 game Bombfell, but it is not <laughs> it is a service if you're a modern gentleman you might want to streamline some of these stressful parts of your life like shopping i don't like to shop guess what bombfell lets you update your look with brand new items to refresh your wardrobe you sign up you're paired with a stylist they hand select items they think will work for you you get to do things like i put in like like what kinds of things what's your personal style so they're not like trying to do a whole uh, a whole restyling of you you say here's the kind of stuff that i wear and then they work within that and there's an actual person there they will look through different collections of menswear around the world they will find the clothes that you look great in you pay for what you keep returns are free it's a smart way to shop it's completely flexible i was working with my stylist they were they you know they had some questions there was one thing that they were asking me i was like i don't know if i really want that uh and they're like oh that's fine i can find something else if you you know if you don't like this kind of shirt i can get you that kind of shirt sent me a couple of items i got a a, a pair of jeans and i thought i I don't need another pair of jeans and then i got the jeans they're so nice they're so nice (laughs) and I, i would never have even looked at them and i tried them on and i was like oh yeah i'm totally keeping these and there was also a uh, a polo shirt a slub polo that they sent and i haven't uh, wear i haven't been wearing polo shirts very much lately and the ones that i've got are kind of old and not very good and i put it on and i was like yeah this is pretty this is pretty nice actually so i'll wear that too so i guess uh, what i'm saying is i am a bomb fell success story now there is a special deal for download listeners you can get 25 dollars off your first purchase just go to bombfell.com slash download. That's just like it sounds. Bombfell, B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L.com slash download. Sign up. Tell them your measurements, the kind of clothes you like. You'll get an email from your stylist. you got 48 hours to make changes or cancel altogether. And then when you get your clothes, you've got seven days to try them on and you're in total control. You can turn back what you don't 
end up liking. Go to bombfell.com slash download for 25 off your first purchase. Bombfell, open and clothes. Ha! Whoa, see what they did there? (laughs) Thanks, Bombfell, for your puns and your support of download. All right, so let's move on to our uh, our next topic. Or actually, I want one little thing I wanted to I wanted to throw in, Lisa, before we stop talking about Windows 10, which is there's more mixed reality stuff. Like Microsoft really wants everybody to have a headset. It sounds like so there's more sort of like VR stuff in there. It sounds like with a bunch of uh, mm-hmm. headsets that are going to be available for people to use, and uh, yeah. and they and they're also doing their story remix thing that they showed off that impressed everybody. I guess that's in the Photos app now. So you know there's there's some other interesting stuff going on in there. Microsoft. They're not going to let the headset thing go, are they? No, and there's two reasons for that. The first <laughs> is that there's the gaming audience, uh, sure. and they they are doubling back. They they are recommitting to the Xbox. They've recently done a little bit of an executive shuffle, and I can't remember who went where off the top of my head. But uh, the fact that they bumped up the gaming guy, where he's now sitting, he's like he's now in the top executive circle, and. That's a big deal because it means that they're taking it seriously as a, as a line of business. Well, and it's a threat. Uh, somebody else, like like Oculus, is a threat to Microsoft in the sense that if they can do a really great gaming headset that doesn't require a PC, I mean, gaming PCs is a part of that the Windows platform. And if you don't <laughs> yeah, need a PC so anymore, your PC sales, which are already mm, dwindling. Yeah. Um. So so there's that, and um. The other reason is that Microsoft really, really wants to make sure it's the standard for mixed reality and augmented reality in specific industries. It wants to make itself the default. I think I've said on previous issues of this podcast that I wouldn't be surprised if they partner with an engineering school at a major university to, you know, make the HoloLens part of the freshman hardware requirement package. Because, um, you know, Microsoft's been very aggressive about reaching out to disparate industries from um, automakers to utilities to medicine to NASA and finding ways in which augmented and mixed reality and collaboration are the norm. So... You know, they're pushing this because they also want to habituate home users either and, and either because you'll have somebody who gets back in the workforce and who's like, yeah, I'm totally comfortable with headsets and mixed reality. So please let me work in your, you know, Lowe's kitchen design department because I can do this. Or, you know, they'll go off to college and they've already got a baseline familiarity the same way that those of us who went to college in the late 80s and early 90s had a bit of an advantage if we had grown up in a home with a PC or, you know, or a telnet connection because we already knew how to how to handle computing and networking. So. <laughs> So yeah, um, you know, mixed reality, this actually leads us really nicely into the whole Surface thing, which is that, um, you know, Microsoft did roll out some new hardware this week. And um, I think what we have to do whenever we look at a hardware release is ask who it's serving. Is it serving groups of people who grew up with keyboards and touchpads? Or is it serving people who have grown up with um, touchscreens and swiping and augmented reality and will expect that as bog standard in their computing interface? And, you know, I think this is Microsoft recognizing that um, typing and mousing are going to belong to a very specific generation of computing users. And it's time to start easing us all into the next the next stage in interfaces. I've been a big fan of, I like the idea of mixed reality and augmented reality much more than virtual reality because I'm not a gamer, but I also think everything that I've heard and seen about virtual reality and every platform is that, you know, when was the first time we, uh, was it with Jared Lanier? It was like virtual reality Uh, is like next year or two years away. Oh God, was this in the nineties with Wired? Yeah, it's like, are we 20 yeah. years into virtual reality is a year or two away? And I feel like we now have actual hardware that matches some of those promises, but we don't have software or games or, or utility for it or even um, some of the requirements. So it's I, I like a push that suggests that we're that virtual reality is less important than all these other things that are achievable today and have actual use cases or fun cases right, right? although, although uh, yeah. vr in some ways is easier than ar in the sense that with ar you all you actually have to lay it over reality which means you have to do but we're even there they're you know detecting planes and surfaces and having the graphic power to draw over what you're you know what the reality base is it's it's all kind of coming together the question has shifted from can we do this to what will we do with this? (laughs) I've always thought that the reason 1990s cyberpunk virtual reality has not come to pass is because we kind of averted the model where instead of people hopping into this Gibsonian cyberspace where you have your deck 
and you're withdrawn from meat space and everything takes place oh. in the like so instead of going there what we've effectively done is we've carried it all around with us that's what mobile devices are are there tiny portals where yeah. we mix and match which which states of reality we want to be in and we're going to say you know google glass was kind of a logical next step with the idea that you'd go through the world with an on-demand data overlay or data recording device integrated into your senses and the execution was bungled but the intent is is pretty much in line with the idea that people don't necessarily want to like sit in their room and turn into those disturbing people from up where they float in the chair and have the virtual reality what they really want to do is take their own little internal world around with them as they go through the motions of daily life and so and so augmented reality is kind of an extension of that you know it's it's like the it, it's it, it takes the same premise that you that that you have things going on in your head or you have a or, or you have data you need and you need to access it but you're going to have to do it in environments that are, are unavoidable for you whether it's school or work or like the NASA undersea lab or someplace like that the the other thing to talk about here so I wanted to talk a little bit surface book two announced all the embargoes dropped this week this is the latest version of the a very interesting product that microsoft came out with last year which is the surface book because it's the convertible surface laptop so they make a surface laptop they make a surface tablet that uh that you can add a little cover keyboard to but this is the convertible where microsoft is making it's a laptop you can detach the screen from it and sort of use it as a tablet but you can also attach it and then it's a laptop uh there's a 13 inch version and a 15 inch version the um the biggest knock on the on the original surface book was battery life the battery life i think it's they're they're saying five hours with the tablet which while not an ipad level of battery life means that it can legitimately use it as a tablet which the first model it was kind of not legitimately that because the battery life was so poor now it's sort of like a laptop that you can disconnect and use as a tablet for hours and it's still fine um really interesting it's got that kind of strange curvy dock like connector area <laughs> it's like the enterprise and the first episode of star trek the next generation where it like it detaches you can separate all the saucer from related, the main. yeah all they're all connected lisa so I think, you know, the, one of the stories of the last five years has been Microsoft really getting into hardware design. And I think that although the Surface Book is kind of a weird product on one level, it also seems to be like trying to solve the hardest problem, which is how to mate uh, a real laptop, quote unquote, real laptop with something that can be a tablet. So, you know, Lisa, what do you think of, of Surface Book 2? Um, what's, your, what's your take on, on how, they, how they've done so far? So one of my writers got hands on time with it and he loved it. And um, he's very excited about it. And because he's steeped in Microsoft lore, he was able to explain all of the improvements and where they're coming from and who they can be traced back to. And um, so if you are somebody who's actually really into Microsoft hardware, and those people do exist, this is a big deal. Taking a couple steps back, the way I feel about the Surface laptop is generally how I feel about all of the convertibles, like, and I include like the, the Lenovo yoga line in this and other things, which is it feels like a, a highly transitional technology. It's not going to be one that sticks around with us. It's kind of like the Palm Pilot that way. Like, do you remember how the Palm Pilot was a huge deal in the late nineties and people had them and you could, you could beam information to each other and you could, you could write notes and there was, and there were all these things you could plug in to try to extend this tiny portable computer. But like once you know, they, they were kind of, the sales were kind of flattening at the turn of the century anyway. And then once smartphones happened, like nobody, nobody, nobody has like a, a personal digital assistant that's you know, not also a phone and a camera, right? Um, because somebody found a way to make it work. And I feel like this is kind of the same thing where the people at Microsoft put a lot of thought and care into designing a product that is aimed at folks who are used to working with keyboards and mm. are learning and are learning how to, you know, switch to a tablet where there's a lot of touch and swooping and grabbing and pinching and styluses and things like that. But it has the feel of, 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 of transitional technology. Like, like we haven't quite gotten to what the next logical way to, to, to compute is yet. And 
Oh, this, this is like if yeah. Apple had stopped with the iPod and said, look, we figured it out. The iPod's yeah. the thing. We're just going to make this for the next 40 years because this is it, right, folks? We don't need, you know. Well, like, I can remember Peter Cohen writing a piece about how um, he uses iPod as a hard drive because he's like, I just realized this isn't, this isn't a music machine. This is actually a hard drive that has a music piece. He's like, this is a hard drive that has music software overlaid. And like, that was kind of a light bulb moment. And, and with this, um, I, I do like that you can use it either way, but Again, I have the feeling that this is the kind of technology where they're trying to please two separate constituencies, or they're trying to bridge the gap because they're trying to figure out what's next. And um, it, it has kind of a feel of well, it'll be it'll be a fun thing to use. Um, and in about five years, something else will come along. It'll be intuitive. It'll be obvious. And we're like, oh, of course, that's how it's supposed to work. Well, um, it, are we waiting for it? Or is this just sort of a way to uh, provide a bridge to people who aren't quite willing to just buy a Surface and use the keyboard cover? Because that's the other the other way. I mean, hey, I've got, I've got a keyboard deck for my iPad that basically turns it into a laptop. And it's great because... I can use it on my lap, but um, it does. It, it, it's also not quite right because I'm sort of. I feel like I'm mixing uh, two different modes of computing together when I do that, and and this is in the middle, firmly in the middle. Was it really confusing though? I, I had to use my. Uh, I had iPad Pro. I have the 9.7 inch, and I used it with the keyboard, um, the, one of the better keyboard covers, and uh, from Apple. And I had a laptop sort of semi fail for a few days, and I went full on with that, and it just it. My head was kind of like, Ooh. I mean, like when you're talking about. So like retraining your brain to work with this new modality. Then I get the laptop back and I'm like touching the screen. I'm like, I know. Yeah, no, I do that now with my with my MacBook Air all the time because I like Jason, I use my iPad. If I'm at press conferences, I used it as my primary machine at CES this past January because I had a keyboard cover. Um, I can't remember the name of the vendor, but oh my God, it broke. Like the key, the keyboard itself was great. The cover was, the cover, like little plastic parts keep snapping off. And I was really ticked because I paid like $99 for it at the Apple store. Anyway, long story short, like I thought I I got a lot of pleasure out of being able to grab things on my screen as well as type and switching back and forth. And so Jason, I think you're onto something where you're like, this is a way to, 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 to ease people in. Maybe it's like training wheels for where, I suspect we're heading in computing, which is to say swiping as a first line or, or, or a more tactile, um, approach to computing. This is a nice midway, the right. same way like Le- Lenovo Lisa, does are th- too. Is there a heads up version of this or like a, I mean, this is the thing is as we have devices that detect us better, like I was just accidentally, I was testing Adobe's uh, character animation software yesterday. I just, I didn't even realize it was part of Creative Cloud. I launched it and I'm like, oh my God, the thing on screen is perfectly tracking me with the camera on my iMac. This is, I mean, I know it's possible, but I hadn't run one of those directly before. So my question is, is the transition more tactile or is it some combination of senses and they haven't figured out whether it's going to be moving your hand in the air or touching the screen or hitting a key or all of those things together. I think so. What I think is going to be really interesting, and, and here we're getting away from Microsoft and just going into in the future. Um, but what I think you're going to see um, is twofold. I think you're going to see the idea of productive interfaces being a lot more kinetic, but they're also going to be highly customized. For example, if you are in um, an engineering or a field where you have to manufacture and fabricate things. I think you're going to have a lot of augmented reality with gloves and headsets and things like that, just because you're going to want to be able to manipulate things in space to see where they go. Um, but you're going to also have people whose fields reward 2d renderings and things like that, artists and, and, and swiping and stuff like that. Um, my wild and crazy theory, and this is actually where Microsoft is well positioned, is if you look at how Minecraft has permeated education from elementary school on, you are looking at gen- you're looking at a generation of computer users who are used to who who are indoctrinated to the idea that they can physically control the environment in which they do everything else they want to do. And I think we're going to see a rise in drop and drag type interfaces where people customize their UI. And not just in terms of, oh, I'm going to make this bar blue and I'm going to arrange my windows this way and have lap- uh, desktops. I think we're going to have to see people who are like, no, I'm a very physical, I'm a very physical worker. So I am flipping on the set of switches and moving my hands around to do work versus some other people who are like, no, I'm much more comfortable as a linear worker and cutting and pasting. So I'm going to use a combination of typing and swiping. 
And that's where we're headed. I don't want people to interpret our comment comment about this as a uh, transitional device, as an insult. Like, transitions are often quite necessary. And while we might look at this in five or ten years and be like, wow, remember when we tried to take PCs and tablets and whatever comes next and kind of jam them all together? But in the moment, like, they can have a lot of value. And I see see Microsoft doing this, and and the other convertibles are like this a, a little bit too, and saying, look, we aren't just making a Surface laptop and a Surface tablet. We're making this thing that's in between. And, you know, pretty much every Windows PC has a touchscreen now, but it's like, no, but you, but using a touchscreen on a laptop or even a desktop is not the same as holding a screen in your hand and touching it. So now, like, here you go. You got a laptop. It's fine. You can use it on your lap like always, but... Stay with me here. (laughs) You can pop it off, and now you've got a tablet. And maybe that's a that's a hand, you know, being held out across a chasm to say, you know, I know you want your Windows laptop, but um, you know, maybe next time you won't. Maybe next time a a, a Surface, more you know, standard kind of like tablet Surface is is going to be the right move for you. Maybe not, but um, you know, there is value in having transitional products. So I think it's interesting. I think I think Microsoft. Learned a lot of lessons from the first Surface Book, which was weird, and this one looks yeah. less weird, much better, yeah. much more powerful, much better battery life. There's like so many of the uh, common criticisms of that first uh, first Surface Book seem to have been addressed directly by Microsoft here, and good for them. That's I, I, you know, I think Microsoft is doing a great job with their hardware stuff, and I'm not quite sure how many people are buying them, and that is the question that hangs over the entire Surface line is. It is it, you know it's a little bit like um, asking Google about the, the their hardware stuff, which is is this just setting the stage? Are you really committed to building hardware here when you're so committed to the future being in the cloud? Is this you know it, because there are rumblings about like how committed is Microsoft to Surface even as they're doing good work in building these products? So I have a theory slash answer. Um, Microsoft also released a version of Windows 10 for frontline workers, whom they, defi- whom they define as people who don't work at desks or in offices. So you're looking at retail, you're looking at um, medical professionals, you're looking at um, construction, you're looking at places where people are on their feet, but will still need to either input information as part of their job, or access um, a database or access a cloud-based service. And so a product like this, where you can have a laptop where somebody can manipulate figures or numbers or check schedules that also um, works as a tablet where somebody can easily hold a tablet while they're on a job site or while they're closing a sale or something like that. This it, this might be a really great machine option for non-traditional workers, not non-traditional, but for non-office workers. This might be exactly what you want if you're running a if you're running a, a retail operation, or if you're an architect who's on a job site a lot and need to transition between writing emails to pulling up CAD drawings to making notes. Well, we'll see where Microsoft goes next. We're all watching. Watching carefully. Um, I, I want to scare people and talk about uh, security flaws and Wi-Fi. But before we do that, let me tell you about another sponsor of the show. Uh, this episode of Download brought to you in part by our friends at Hover. Building your online identity has never been more important. With Hover, you can find the domain that shows the world who you are and what you're passionate about. I have so many domains at Hover, I don't even want to say. Uh, we started a space podcast. I bought liftoffpodcast.space because, yes, dot .space is a domain area that you can get and if you are in outer space right now i hope you're breathing uh, normally and you could buy a dot space domain uh when i was shopping for sixcolors.com i went to hover turned out that it was owned by somebody and i was able to get the information and contact them and all that but i bought a whole bunch of other related domains you know snell world uh snell zone uh you know lots of other things i was trying out and six colors with a u even all loaded up in hover then when i was writing a novel i i registered the domain for the name of the novel so i could have that as a as a site for when every gets published which i don't know when that will be uh, but it's really great when you have an idea and you put a domain behind it and then it's so easy to just say go here and that's where all your stuff is so hover they got a great interface it is super easy for me to see all the domains that i've got they don't do a lot of upselling there's not a lot of junk in there their customer support team is awesome and 
they have free who is for privacy so uh you don't have to pay extra for people to not look up all of your personal information on the internet which is very nice there are more than 400 domain extensions to choose from to help you build your identity online if you're a designer or another creative professional guess what there's the new dot design domain that you could get that's pretty cool Ooh. instead of a dot com or a dot biz or something like that you can say who, who am i i'm a designer go to me you know whatever my name is dot design whatever my firm is dot design that's pretty cool they're on sale for the entire month of october at hover for 599 85% off your first year half the price of a dot com domain and if you're a new customer you can get an additional 10% off any of the 400 plus extensions offered by going to hover.com slash download fm that's hover.com slash download fm thank you to hover for supporting download all right, so crack. Let's talk about crack. But it's not it's not like crack like uh the sound or anything like that. It's crack with a K, which if you're if you're like me, nothing good comes from something that starts with a K when it should start with a C. No. If you've ever if you've ever been to the supermarket and bought uh, bought crab with a K, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but with the Wi-Fi uh, think... crack breach, Glenn, cra- Wi-Fi is ruined. Let me see if I can explain this as simply as possible because it's super complicated. Yes, help, us. help us. It's Glenn. got a very high level thing. So first, every Wi-Fi radio device, every device that has a Wi-Fi radio in it made since... 2003 or so, literally every device, so maybe billions of devices, is vulnerable to this exploit. That's terrible. But uh, Wi-Fi is proximity-based, so you have to get near somebody. And you know you can use people like, well, I could just use a, a high-gain antenna, and I could be a mile away. It's like, yes, yes, yes. But in general practice, that's for targeted attacks. So as an individual worried about this, you need to be only concerned if someone's going to get close to you running a radio with software that doesn't yet exist to try to break into your network. So And also, tons of companies are patching this. So the actual attack is this graduate student by himself... This is so terrible. Um, very smart guy, sure, but really nobody had apparently bothered to look at this exploit because it sounds like it was literally minutes of work that he discovered the problem and then weeks and weeks to, to sort it out and create proofs of concept. So it's been lying there dormant since 2004. Um, the notion is that with uh, Wi-Fi protected access to a more a better flavor than the original ones, there was WEP, uh, Wired Equivalent Privacy it was the original Wi-Fi security method for protecting access to your local network. It was upgraded to WPA, which was a transitional thing, and WPA2 has been the basic thing since 2004, and practically every device shipped and uh, everything that has Wi-Fi on it as a certified label has had to have it since, I don't know, just a few years after that. So WPA2 does this thing. You punch in your security key on your you know computer or your mobile or your refrigerator or whatever it is and uh you're hovering droid that you know takes pictures and uh it knows the key because it's identical to the key stored in the base station and in order to create a secure connection they do something called a four-way handshake and the details are sort of unimportant but they talk to each other like hey do you know the key yeah i do here's how i prove it okay great here's some cryptographic information that prevents somebody in the middle from sniffing this connection and and we never really exchange the key because we both know it's true and we just proved it to each other so that's cool what this research found is like in step three of this process, the um, base station sends a thing to the client saying, okay, here's that thing you needed. And the client in step four is supposed to say, cool, I got it. So if the client doesn't acknowledge it, the base station retransmits the information because, hey, that shows something didn't happen. Something's wrong, right? Well, the vulnerability is that the client doesn't check that it came from the base station or that previously sent information is being replayed, which is a big no-no in the security world. If you can replay cryptographic information in identical form, then if you know what's being sent over the wire, like it's some network background information or a piece of text or you know some routine thing that you can guess, then you can use that to actually decipher a stream of of cryptographic information without obtaining an encryption key. So it's like the worst possible thing. Uh, so many software clients, so this is iOS, macOS, Windows, Android, refrigerator, OS, <laughs> hovering drone, OS, whatever, all of these stacks are you know built by different people at different times, but a lot of them share a lot of common code or they might be built in one, you know, everything connected to Windows is probably using something very similar, etc. In that third step, the client does not do the right thing and it resets this internal counter, which is what causes so so the 
it's not no cryptographic information even has to be stolen. It's just that the client hears the same message from what it thinks is the AP again. It goes, oh, I need to reset my counter to zero and replay the stream of cryptographic information again. That's bad, right? <laughs> so that that allows a, that allows a, a man in the middle essentially to say, uh, "No, it's me. I'm the access point," and then well, sit between them. Is that of. right? No, it's actually, this is what's so insidious about it, is you have to set up a rogue AP of some kind. You you set up a device as an attacker that pretends to be the access point, but it doesn't have to know any secrets. That's what's so terrible. It just needs to, in that third step, at any point after the connection is made, it sends a forged message to the client that says, oh, wait, here's that key again. And the client goes, oh, it's the key again. I will reset my counter to zero, at which point it replays the same stream of cryptographic, it's called cipher, or as a key stream. It's a it's a series of cryptographic information that's based on this counter in part. So if you reset it to zero, you have the same uh, a stream of cryptographic data being used to protect what's going on over the network. So in the right circumstances, which is essentially all circumstances, an attacker sits there, they reset that counter, they can do it as many times as they want by pushing it to the client. They look for what they think are typical network messages like, hey, here are all the devices on the network. Like an, this is an ARP message. Or, or huh, here's a um, uh, bonjour message from uh, Macintosh saying that it's available for you know uh, printer output. And if it knows typical things and can guess them, it can then decipher that oh. and then use that to further decipher what's on it. So it's an extraction process. So it crack it, it can it, it just keeps requesting new stuff and then it can crack the code. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be on the network at all, but it can examine it can rely on what it knows might be typical information on the network to extract it because it can reset and look at cryptographic information that's identical passing again and again. So statistically it can eventually crack and recover some you know large percent. Here's the even worse thing. What the guy found is there's a super bad bug in Android and all Android derivatives that, uh, and Linux versions that use a specific WPA package uh, that was released, I forget how long ago, but it's an Android 6.0 and later and all devices that adopted that version. In Android, if the key is sent again in that third step... Um, by a malicious party, it resets to all zeros. The cryptographic key is turned to zero, zero, oh, zero, no. zero, zero. Uh-huh. So then when you want to decipher that cryptographic stream from the client back to the AP, two things happen. One is the client doesn't talk correctly to the AP because the AP is ex- expecting the r- correct key. So your device gets weird. You may be off the network. So that's maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, it may reset in other ways too, but you as a, an attacker, knowing that the encryption key is all zeros, you can decrypt everything being sent by the client to the AP. And so the danger here is that if you, am I right in saying this, that if you have a vulnerable device on your network, it can be attacked and your network can be deciphered? Uh, there's some of that because there's uh, there are keys that, so there, there's actually not like one WPA. WPA2, if you're using it uh, in a personal setting or even in an enterprise setting, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a key that's either shared, like you type it in with WPA2, to personal or with enterprise, you log in, but then a key is generated uh, for each device. So it's really the same kind of thing. Um, that is one kind of passphrase, but there's also like group keys and there's a key used for fast reconnection, fast handoff. So in enterprise networks, there's a standard that lets uh, a device move among access points very quickly without having to reauthenticate, which makes access points vulnerable to this problem too. Oh boy! So Glenn, I have a I have a layperson question for this. Absolutely. Which is if what you're describing, if I have just like a smart home, a smart home device that allows me to stream music or allows me to watch my kid or something like that. Exactly. How do I go about updating that or making sure it's not vulnerable? Like, where do I go for that information or, yeah, or yeah. how do I deal with the, how do I deal with the software? I mean, it, it seems like there's a big difference between appliances and devices versus how computers and operating people who are responsible for operating systems handle this. Yeah, this is like, uh, this is like the, um, IoT, uh, uh, Internet of Things, uh, uh, security apocalypse because we already know that those kinds of devices are vulnerable to network-based attacks because they often are poorly secured from the rest of the Internet. So you have millions of DVRs in like Colombia and some other countries where they were used that are parts of botnets. And there's, there's a, there are billions of IoT devices already in place. There are 10 billion coming. Oh in the my next God. Few this years. is like that plot thing on Silicon Valley where they basically <laughs> use refrigerators as, as, as hard drive storage. That's 
literally true. It's not. There's no. It's it's being used. So there are. There's like the the Marais botnet was one of the big ones that was reported on quite a bit. But there are millions of devices that are essentially acting as bots because they're poorly secured on one side. This is weird because it's it adds to that. It's that same problem of things that are either that are not patched automatically. Or uh, if they offer patches, most consumers aren't aware of or can apply them. And then we get into that thing Jason was talking about, and you were, we were talking about earlier too. Is that? Um, or, I'm sorry, you were talking about is that uh, applying patches automatically, even to consumer devices, is not a great thing because then you have situations like Nest where they push out an automatic update and like half a percentage of their users are suddenly knocked or thermostats go crazy or knocked off the network. So there's no great compromise there. And I put out this statement on Twitter that said essentially. If you have hardware that cannot be updated, you should you should move it towards retirement and no longer use it, which is terrible. But what's the alternative? Because it means every device now, someone could walk up to your house or be, like I say, a mile away with a high-gain antenna if they're trying to particularly hack your network and ostensibly somehow break in, recover, maybe regain keys, um, whatever, and get into your network and hijack your your home devices and and so forth. So even if every computing device you have and is updated, you're cool. Um, the one thing I'll say is <clears throat> it's not entirely clear yet um, whether uh, access points can be fully updated to immunize clients on that network. So if you have vulnerable smart home clients, uh, you know, you've got a smart light bulb and it has, has no update, but you're using some Linksys model or Cisco or whatever model and, um, you know, more likely an Eero or one of the new um, mesh network nodes uh, will, uh, I've talked to a few people say it should be possible if the AP can be updated to prevent this particular vulnerability from happening because the AP, uh, APs can both monitor and be aware, but also can send out different messages that prevent this retransmission. So we haven't yet seen in practice all the, the information I've seen so far is either enterprise scale access points being updated or um, like Apple has updates for its four operating systems in beta now and we pushed that with the next release. Windows patched everything from Windows 7 through 10 and server 2012 and later on October 10th without labeling it as such. It was part of the routine update. Uh, so all Windows devices that are updated across all those releases are now immunized against this particular attack at the client level too. So it's interesting. The, the The threat here is not like somebody's going to come over the internet and steal all your stuff. The threat is really that somebody could, if they can he- basically hear your Wi-Fi, they can get into your network and have access to your network traffic, right? That's yeah, all, and not necessarily all your traffic, but some of it. Because if they right. can get access to one client, they can they can then ostensibly decipher everything going between that client and the network, and then any group messages. So anything that's being broadcast to all devices on a network. Uh, but then this fast handoff thing, which is really not found in personal systems at all, that would provide a tool to get into more devices on a a um, corporate network. Also, but if you're using fast handoff, if you have an IT department that's deployed that because it requires coordination, it's more likely that you're going to be on some kind of maintenance cycle that has updates for your Wi-Fi hardware, um, and also your users will probably be using systems that are supported too. So the most vulnerable corporate installations are also the most likely to be up to date. Um, but the thing that's the biggest worry is, you know, this is what we were talking about earlier too a bit, is it's devices that can't be patched. So there's the smart home things, but then there's every... Um, there's every Android device in the world, right? Is that uh, their Android phones uh, are highly dependent on manufacturer and carrier choices as to whether they can receive any updates. Many older releases have received none, and the estimate is about 50% of Android devices that are currently in use are vulnerable and have no necessary path to update. I mean, that's the unclear part is 50% of them, it'll be an easy thing because they're using a, uh, or it's relatively easy because they're using a version that's part of a chain that's still Active and most of those devices will be updatable. Most of the updates will happen over the air without much user intervention. But the other 50%, it's possible that the majority of them will never be patched and will remain vulnerable to this when someone's out walking around with an Android phone or tablet or, or other thing that's Android-based. Oh, boy. Um, one of the things that I, I exchanged some tweets with a security expert, and I, you know, I, I was saying it looks to me like this is – 
more of a nation state thing ultimately. It's not a crack that we have to worry about as individuals, but if you're a government agent or you know a certain kind of criminal syndicate trying to gain access to a specific target or a set of targets in a certain area, this is just part of your toolkit now because you know there'll be unpatched devices. In fact, I think it's likely, based on how simple it was for someone with a little effort to find it and it hasn't been discovered in 13 years, means Governments around the world are already using this and have probably used it to penetrate traffic where people have assumed they were secure. However, one more caveat or proviso is that uh, this doesn't break secure web connections. So if you're using HTTPS or you have a secure email connection or using a VPN, you're still protected because this doesn't break uh, that security that's layered inside of Wi-Fi security. Right. It's a little bit like being on an unsecure Wi-Fi network, right? Whereas if you're exactly. if, if the data that you're transmitting is going over a secure web connection or a VPN, it doesn't matter that you're at Starbucks without a password because the data that it, even if people could read the data going across, it's encrypted data at that point. That's exactly it. And the the one the, there's like another proviso in that is people have pointed out that in the past there have been attacks that force um, that will force a downgrade. So someone will use a DDoS style thing on a local network, a dist- or, or just a denial of service DOS, to try to prevent someone from uh, being able to connect to a secure site in their browser or an app. A lot of apps don't necessarily preferentially connect to uh, HTTPS or secure uh, sites, so it might force um, if it can't get to the right HTTP site, it will go to HTTP by default, and then it's sniffable. But that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that requires a lot more effort and coordination. There aren't active uh, active assaults that work with those, even those those have existed in the past. So if you're using a VPN, it's not that you're 100% protected, but holy cow, it's just, as you say, it's like being on an unprotected public space. You go into Starbucks to use a VPN at Starbucks. If not, you should. This is like having that issue at any network in which you're sure you're using an unpatched cloud client, your hardware isn't patched or your access point isn't patched or both, you're probably in that, that um, if you want the most security, then you need to worry about a VPN. But like I say, I think this is within, you know, in two weeks, something like 50 to 70% of all affected clients that can be patched will probably be patched. And then at that point, you should just check uh, sometime in the next month or so, check your other devices that are on your Wi-Fi network and see if they've had software updates or not, and then and then consider it. But it looks like... It's a, it's a good time to reevaluate. If you have like a three-year-old webcam and it's never been patched and the company's out of business or it's not releasing updates, then, you know, kind of those pictures may already be all over the internet. If someone, I mean, have you ever done this thing? There are sites that link to all of the open, open cameras webcams, on the internet. yeah, sure. I used to have a screensaver that did that, that it would just like every minute it would move to a different open webcam. That sounds both interesting and horrifying. It was all it was all like uh, lobbies, and there was a one of them was a bar in Russia, and that was awesome because it was Russians <laughs> drinking it while it was the middle of the day in the U.S. That was pretty cool. Oh my god! It's so, it's the lobbies that are excruciating. The lo- yeah, it's like oh, there's another lobby. That's exciting. The worst mm-hmm. one is when you can actually get the admin interface that has like the little joystick, so you can move it's cameras around. Move cameras. That's it's not good. super creepy. Those people yeah, are some, not updating their software, is what we're saying. No. Or they I, actually, I got email. The hilarious part is I got email once from a MacWorld reader who said, "I don't know how to deal with this. I was doing something else. I clicked." a link and I'm looking at somebody's uh, you know they're, re- they're researching a camera and they're looking at someone's house like four cameras including like looking at a kid's room and like this totally freaks me out I'm not a journalist how can I help this person and I was like look I'll, I'll get involved and I figured out I was able to run down who the person was send them email and said I know this is super weird but and the person wrote back said oh my god thank you for emailing I took the password off briefly last year I thought to fix a problem because we couldn't get something to work I must have never re-enabled it thank you so much but am I going to do that for a million people I am not Probably not. Probably not. I'm not that good. Maybe I'll start a foundation. There's a little more to talk about, but before we do that, let me take one more break to tell you about our third sponsor this week. It's Squarespace. Here's the offer code. Download FM. Download FM. That's it. You use that at checkout. You get 10% off your first purchase. You've heard about Squarespace. Well, I'm going to tell you about it again anyway. It is a a universe inside of this universe that is shaped like a square. No, that's not it. It is a service that lets you make websites for your next idea with ease. You get a unique domain, award-winning templates, and 
a whole lot more. So if you want to create an online store, a portfolio, a blog, it's all in one, one platform, build the whole thing, maintain it. It's easy. There's nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about. There are no upgrades. You don't have to worry about what server it's running on. None of that stuff. Squarespace takes care of all of it. And they've got great 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab your unique domain name and then build a site around it. And they've got award-winning templates that are beautifully designed and responsive. So they look great on phones. They look great on tablets. They look great on Surface uh, Surface. Uh, book twos in no matter what mode they're in they look great everywhere they started just twelve dollars a month for a squarespace plan get a whole website with beautiful professionally designed templates and you can start a trial with no credit card at all just go to squarespace.com and sign up and uh no uh, no credit card you can just see what you will get if you get squarespace and when you decide to sign up use that offer code download fm and you'll get that 10 percent off your first purchase and it will show squarespace that you support this podcast and thank you to squarespace for supporting download make your next move make your next website squarespace glenn do you have anything more to frighten us about before we move on about the wi-fi crack it's 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 halloween season it's time for a scary security problem well i will just say this actually the the great part is that the guy who found this um this researcher uh was working on something unrelated did the responsible disclosure thing and went through a process so that the search the uh, computer uh, computer emergency response team organization uh was able to notify like every goddamn vendor in the world that makes stuff which is a lot of companies like basically every company that makes any hardware that has wi-fi in it needed to know about this and so there was a coordinated response enough time to release patches and it dramatically minimizes the attack uh area so that that part was good so yeah um, congratulations to him for finding it of course it was yeah you're right though somebody probably somebody else knew about this right some some the nsa knew about this the 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 gru knew about it this north korea knew about right probably a bunch of state actors knew about it but then this guy just sort of like flops into it and is like oh no that's bad And, and then he tells everybody good for him if the folks, if like uh, human rights advo- activists and other people who feel threatened by government intrusion or even criminal intrusion have been doing the right thing, or even infor- unfortunately also criminals and terrorists have been using signal or other techniques to um, have end-to-end encryption, they would be unaffected by this. But any leak, like if they were being monitored and all this stuff was being sniffed, like any leak of any unencrypted information would, would wind would, up uh, would get out. hurting them. Yeah. Well, That's congratulations it, but... to Matthew Van Hoof who uh, found this and Good man. and they Good set man. up crackattacks.com for yeah. everybody. You have to have a name now. You have to have Heartbleed or whatever. Yeah. It has to be some kind of name so he can so crack, crack with K's. K's are never good. <laughs> good. Before we go, I wanted to tell everybody about a story they may have missed. I'll put a link in the show notes. So James T. Green is a friend of the show. He's been on the show before. He's been on Clockwise. He's a great guy. He works at Gimlet, working on The Nod, which is an awesome podcast that people should check out. And uh, he had so he has an apple watch and he runs an app called heart watch because he loves like logging personal information like life logging kind of stuff and he loves health tracking stuff and he gets an alert on his uh, apple watch and this is he's because he's running heart watch he's not actually using one of the new apple watches that have some more heart monitoring now newer apple watches now can monitor your heart and warn you if you have a problem but he was running the heart watch app and he got a notification that said your heart rate is elevated and there might be something wrong and he checked it out and went to a doctor and found that he had a pulmonary embolism which oh could God. have killed him. Oh, wow. And instead, um, he is alive and well because he got he went to a doctor and got checked out because he got the alert. Now, the, this is, I think we're going to hear more stories like this because we've got these devices that are, that are I, I got an alert for my heart rate being elevated, but it was because I was at a football game and something exciting <laughs> happened. I'm not kidding. Lisa's husband was right next to me. I showed him yes. the alert. I'm like, well, you know, we are very excited now. But this is going to, this is going to happen some more. This is going to happen more where, where um, we're going to get just because we have a device 
device that's paying attention to our heart rate when we're not that um, that people's lives are going to be potentially saved by that. And uh, James is one of the people who has already had his life potentially saved by some uh, monitoring of his conditions. And I just think it's a really, I think it's a really cool story. James is a great guy. I hope that he is on the mend and he seems like uh, I was looking at his Twitter feed and it looks like he's doing a lot better, but um, super scary. And yet also really awesome that his, uh, that his watch uh, said something might be up and you should get it checked out. And he did. Mm -hmm. And it was, and now he's, you know, he's still with us and that's awesome. So, uh, not bad, not bad, huh? That's uh, I like that. This is one of my the most exciting things I think about the combination of personal wearable devices and machine learning. So there's obvious stuff like that where it tells like there's certain kinds of patterns that emerge, but the more information. Uh, coupled with outcomes over time. So when we start collecting information over two, three, four years, and it's fed into a training system that's like, hey, this is four years of 10-minute snapshots of someone's heart, and then this is when they had events in their life. When that happens, holy cow, will it be possible to save lives and improve um, lives? Because weird stuff that we would never notice that's well below our threshold or any current monitoring system is going to go like, okay, you're very likely to have a heart attack in about three months <laughs> so now's the time to come in so bearing in mind that the one established study on fertility for women after the age of 35 is actually based on french records that are 300 years old it'll be really interesting to see <laughs> what years worth of data infertility apps do yeah and whether that and and what insights we can get from that too um you know i i do think it's going I'm really like you. I'm excited to see how people will be able to uh, enhance longitudinal studies across data. I'm also really interested to see how the medical profession handles this when more people start coming into doctors' offices with things like, I have four years worth of data here that show all of my trends, and this is what I think is going on, and I need you to review this because um, that's a whole different way of, of working with your doctor than most people have now, you know? Lisa, there'll be new and exciting ways for women's health to be ignored with more data. It'll be, <laughs> yes. sorry, but you know. Yes. That's... The more data you have, there's more to ignore. It's true. <laughs> Chuck, exactly. you, you put a link in the show notes, Glenn, that I should mention. Chuck Letourneau wrote a piece for, for Macworld in 2016 about noticing that he had an elevated heart rate and going to the doctor, too. So this is, you know, it's, it's definitely... Um, it's the fact is something that you might just be like be like yeah it's fine i'm sure it's fine if and then you see the cold hard data and it makes you say wait a second maybe it's not and we're going to start having so so um, uh, a relative of mine. I, sh- I will. I shouldn't disclose too much health information. It's not HIPAA rules, but has a, a bone anchored hearing aid uh, and is getting an upgrade to one that does Bluetooth uh, to a phone. And I've also read. You probably saw. I think Apple announced that that they have um, the uh, intra the uh, what do you call those uh, cochlear implants now that will be linked to a phone. So you'll be able to like take calls in your head. Uh, and it's like people are suddenly like one of the scientists working on the cochlear implant uh, work. She'd actually is a developer of this. She's like, seems kind of cool to me, more or less. And I'm like, so this is part of it. Like one side is better monitoring, better health. The other is the oncoming cyborg revolution. Because we're like, hey, I could just plug myself in and get better monitoring, have these devices in me. And then there are bonuses, too. Yeah. Well, I think there's also going to be like insurance questions that come up with haves versus have nots. And then there's uh-huh. going to be issues of privacy and law enforcement as well. And don't forget what happens when the next crack attack uh, invades their uh, <laughs> yeah. implanted you're, device. You're, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, your head has to be opened up for us to install the latest upgrade, Mr. Mnemonic. Mm, that's not good. That's not good. Mr. Mnemonic. Well, we have, yes, oh, we, got, we brought it all the way back around to cyberspace there at the end. Uh, that's very good. Good job. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this edition of download i want to thank my guests lisa schmeiser where can people find the stuff that you do i would start at twitter.com slash l schmeiser l s-c-h-m-e-i-s-e-r and uh, go from there all right and glenn fleischman where can people find the stuff that you do by all that's holy don't follow me on twitter no. at glenn f g-l-e-n-n-f <laughs> but you can also find me at glenn f g-l-e-n-n-f dot com excellent and lots of writing in Macworld and, and other places too um and that is it. I am been your host, Jason Snell. Stephen Hackett is not here, but thank, thanks to him for putting this show together every week. And we'll be back next week with more. But until then, we will watch the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.